Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Bovinghausen. Today is Tuesday, July 14th, and today we had our weekly Bible study on Hebrews. This week we covered um, verse uh, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. We did spend a little bit of time uh, recapping and going over certain things, the, the main points of um, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. But this is a good... A good um, this is a good study, um, although at the beginning, I will admit, we um, had to give the salutation for the opening prayer again because <laughs> I had not unmuted the microphone, so um, that's why there's a little chuckle there um, with uh, the salutation, you know, the, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, because it was the second time we did it. Anyways, um, this is... Uh, Without further ado, I guess I'll just go ahead and say here is our <clears throat> our study for today um, on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. It would help if I unmuted the microphone. So let's try this again. The Lord be with you. <laughs> Let us pray. Almighty and and Almighty and Merciful God, by your gift alone, your faithful people render true and laudable, s- 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 laudable service. Help us steadfastly to give, to live in this life according to your promises, and finally attain your heavenly glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I'm getting nervous without knowing who's listening out there. That's all right. Um, I think I might have had a little bit too much coffee this morning. Uh, A little jittery, but it's okay. It'll be a lively Bible study experience. Um, So we left off last time uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, right? We're in Hebrews chapter 10, and to do a quick recap on what we talked about last time, um, well, let's, let's read it because the context is important for uh, what we're getting into today. Okay? So we are in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. I believe that's how far we got. Um, so I'll read that for us real quick here. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come... Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins Every year, 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a a footstool for his feet. For by a a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws on their hearts and written and write them on their minds then he adds I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin so That's what we went through last time. And reading through it again, it's kind of a lot there, but it's all going through the main point that Jesus Christ offered up himself as the one and only sacrifice so that the congregation of his brothers, right, the brotherhood, the brethren, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, could be perfected and have perfect access to God. Right? We see that there's kind of this foreshadowing of perfection, that um, through, through the law, there's a shadow of the good things to come, like it says in verse 1, instead of the true form of these realities, right? Uh, but it, because it can't be by the same sacrifices they are continually, that are continually offered every year, they can't make perfect those who draw near to them, that's why they have to do it year after year. Uh, the Day of Atonement was not meant to be a once-for-all sort of thing. They always knew. See you next year, right? Uh, they always knew uh, this, is, this is the Day of Atonement, and you know what? We're going to have to do this again next year, and the year after, and the year after, and the year after. And what became the norm was that they thought this was just going to be done in perpetuity until the Messiah comes. But there was confusion as to who the, who the Messiah was, right? And there was still confusion as to this time amongst those who didn't believe. They still didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. The, uh, the, uh, the anointed one of God to come and deliver the people from their sins. So the author of Hebrews is making the case, saying, look... 
You've participated in this year after year after year. And yet, you need to know. The reason why you do this year after year after year is because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's why you do it continually. But when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So he says, when he comes, you know, that, that was a foreshadowing in, um, let's see, verse 5, from Psalm 40. Um, that was a prophecy of what would come in Christ. Um, I'm trying to see here. So we see that in doing this, in providing this once-for-all sacrifice, it says he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And it's not, I think, was it Paul? You, you, I think you said, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Or somebody said that last time. Might have been Tim. I, I'll give credit to whoever wants it. Um, that's, <laughs> Jesus said, I, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And that's actually going to be a... Um, Funny enough, that's the gospel text for this coming Sunday is Jesus saying that in Matthew where um, uh, he says, you know, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he proceeds to say, you have heard it said you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you call your brother fool or raka, you know, you will be liable to judgment before the council. And, uh, you know, as if you murdered him, right? Uh, and he says, and you have heard it said, um, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that, that a man who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart, right? So he doesn't, he doesn't lighten the law for anybody. He intensifies it to show that there is sin, that, that we are sinful, right? That no matter what we try to do to skirt the law, to try to get around it and say, well... You know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. Well, I, I, I haven't killed anybody. And Jesus says, yeah, but you murdered them in your heart. Well, I haven't really committed adultery. You know what they say, look but don't touch. But Jesus says, I tell you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart, Right? So it's this intensifying of sin to show us just how much we need a Savior. And he comes to be the sacrifice for that sin. Uh, he comes to fulfill the law, and therefore, like it says, he does away with the first in order to establish the second, that the old covenant has been fulfilled. It wasn't just done away with because, ah, oh, well, we don't need it anymore. It wasn't just done away with because saying, you know, um, you know, I have something better and you don't need to worry about that anymore. But the law was fulfilled. Christ has fulfilled it for us by making the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Um, and then he, he draws back to this, um, this uh, understanding here where he says in verse 11, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Um, 
which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So what did we say last time about that? What's the difference between standing and sitting in these contexts? When Christ sat, which I've never even thought about, <laughs> said this so many times, it meant that he, I'm done. Yeah. I'm finished. It is finished. Right. No, yeah. That... It's so interesting that, uh, uh, yeah, the priests still at this time, or we can deduce this, we can infer that temple worship was still ongoing and the priests were still offering the incense and the burnt offerings and the sacrifices every day and things like that. And uh, the author of Hebrews is saying they keep doing it, but it's not really doing what God wants for us. Like It, it was never meant to do these things. They keep on doing it. Because they don't see that Christ has made this sacrifice once for all. And that he sits at the right hand of God, knowing that it is finished. Right? The sacrifice has been made. It's done. It's done. Um, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Right? For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that's interesting. Who are those who are being sanctified? What does it mean to be sanctified? To be made holy. Yeah. Sanctus, you know, when we, look, when we uh, sing in the, uh, in the divine service, right? Um, evermore praising you and, sing, and saying, holy, 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 right? And you look in the hymnal and it says sanctus, sanctification, being made holy, right? Uh, and God says, be holy as... Your father is holy. Or be perfect as your father is perfect, right? And being sanctified is being made perfect um, by the power of God, right? It's not something we do. But it says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And when you go to the Greek, and I'm just kind of going out on a limb here. When, that's verse 14, when you see this in the Greek, you see, yeah, uh, that uh, for, for by his single offering, tetelioken, <laughs> which is a root, from that root word comes Jesus' final words on the cross, according to the Gospel of John, which is, it is finished. Tetelestai. Telos, the end. It is over. It is perfected. It is done. It is finished, right? For that, for by a single offering he has perfected. He has brought to completion. He has met the goal for all time, those who are being made holy. Interesting, right? Um, and then you see here that he goes back to Jeremiah, um, where he quotes Jeremiah in chapter 8. Remember that? Um, the prophecy. Um, i trying to see, where was that? Jeremiah specifically. Jeremiah 31. Remember that? How, um, 
Let me see. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, right? That proclamation, that prophecy of a new covenant. He revisits that and says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then he says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So this is all just really, really driving that point home. Sacrifice, once for all, made in Christ. Um, let's see here. Any, any questions about this before we move on? Any insights y'all care to share from reading this in this way? No? Um, if not, then I'll continue on. Uh, I like to also bring in, you know, the reception and application of this um, that Dr. Kleinig points out in his commentary on Hebrews. He likes to say, you know, how has the church used this passage in the past? Uh, and how have we as Lutherans seen this? And he even brings in the Lutheran confessions. Um, <laughs> he does bring in the point that um, the exegetical, the interpretive strategy that the author of Hebrews uses, right? He's using Psalms, he's using Jeremiah to bring out this interpretation, this understanding of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah. He says... His exegetical strategy also provided the early Lutheran confessors with a practical method of interpretation that avoided simple reappropriation and allegory. Anyways, he goes, he goes on with bigger words. Um, Melanchthon, in Article 24 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, do you all know what the title of that, that article is? Now, we Lutherans don't usually use this word, but... The article in the uh, Apology of the Augsburg Confession and in the Augsburg Confession, Article 24, is titled, The Mass. <laughs> I'm seeing some furrowed brows. We don't have the Mass here. Well, you know, I'll, I'll take a little bit of time here and say, yeah, we do. Um, we have the Mass in the truest sense of the word. Um, we never wanted to... Uh, we never wanted to leave the universal church. Rome kicked us out, right? Because we said, it's not a, it's not a re-sacrifice of Christ every time on the altar. It is a reception of the blessings of the once for all sacrifice on the cross, right? That is the true mass. We have it. Sorry, all you others who say you have a mass, you don't have it. We have it, right? Um, well, we say that. Uh, but we are generous enough to say wherever people gather in this way, and you know, God is the one who decides these things. But as far as our understanding of it, as far as our understanding of what we receive and how we receive it, um, we have it, the Mass. Um, which he brings up, Melanchthon brings up that uh, the relationship between the divine service and the Old Testament 
and the New Testament in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 24, um, which is worth looking at. We're not going to look at it right now. But it's interesting to see how the Lutheran confessors early on use the same reasoning in terms of our understanding of the Mass, the Divine Service, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. They use the same way of interpreting Scripture from the Old Testament to say it's not something new that we do. We are still in that vein of belief. It's just that it is now a fulfilled sacrifice that we are receiving the benefits of through Christ, and not by works of a priest, not by works of those in the temple. But Christ is doing the work as our high priest, interceding for us and giving us his true body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, all right? Any questions on that? <laughs> so, so mass was, was once? Was that what you said? What's that? Mass. Yeah, mass. It was just done once and we're, we're is that what you said? So the mass, um, let me just, I'll just actually pull this up real quick because it's worth it's worth getting into, not, not the Apology, but the Augsburg Confession, Article 24. Um, I'll just read it out for y'all, and y'all let me know what you think, and then we'll move on real quick here. Uh, because it's not a very long article. Oh yeah, the Mass. Uh, Melanchthon wrote, uh, Our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the Mass. The Mass is held among us and celebrated with the highest reverence. Nearly all the usual ceremonies are also preserved, except that the parts sung in Latin are interspersed here and there with German hymns. You know, that, that, was how, that was their practice at the time. These have been added to teach the people. For ceremonies are needed for this reason, uh, for, for ceremonies are needed for this reason alone, that, <laughs> that the uneducated, be taught what they need to know about Christ, right? Everything we do up here, everything that we do in communion, bowing, and everything, this is what we do to teach the children and those who aren't as educated in the faith, this is what we teach them what they need to know about Christ. Not only has Paul commanded that a language understood by the people be used in church, but human law has also commanded it. All, all those able to do so partake of the sacrament together. This also increases the reverence and devotion of public worship. No one is admitted to the sacrament without first being examined. Uh, the people also are advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament, about how it brings great consolation to anxious consciences, so that they too may learn to believe God and to expect and ask from Him all that is good. This worship pleases God. Such use of the sacrament nourishes true devotion toward God. Therefore, it does not appear that the Mass is more devoutly celebrated among the adversaries than among us. Um, and he talks about private Masses as far as uh, priests doing these things on behalf of other people, right? They would pay for priests to do the Mass in their name so that they would receive the benefit for it. And you'd have these... That's why in, in a lot of Roman Catholic churches you have these side altars where the monks would uh, be saying masses. They, like, 
hour after hour because they were paid to do that. That was part of the indulgence kind of system. But without getting into the weeds, um, he says, there have been great disagreements about the mass that is the sacrament. Perhaps the world is being punished for profaning the mass for such a long time and for tolerating this in the churches for so many centuries by the very men who are both able and duty-bound to correct the situation, right? Um, and if you wanna know part of the reasoning for why we have communion every week, this is why. Um, it says, but Christ commands us, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore the mass was instituted so that those who use the sacrament should remember in faith the benefits they receive through Christ and how their anxious consciences are cheered and comforted. To remember Christ is to remember his benefits. It means to realize that they are truly offered to us. It is not enough only to remember history. The Jewish people and the ungodly also remember this. Therefore, the Mass is to be used for, for administering the sacrament to those that need consolation. As Ambrose says, because, because I always sin, I always need to take the, the medicine. Because the Mass is for the purpose of giving the sacrament, we have communion every holy day. And if anyone desires the sacrament, we also offer it on other days when it is given to all who ask for it. This custom is not new in the church. And he goes on about that. Um, but he uses these things to say, you know, this is, this is for your consolation, to teach you about Christ, right? We don't shy away from the word mass because it's too Catholic. In fact, we'd say, you know what? We're the true Catholics because we're not Roman Catholic. Yeah, it means universal. We want to be evangelical Catholics. That's what Luther wanted us to be called, right? We are... The universal church that proclaims the gospel. That gospel includes the Mass, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, meaning, you know, going on and on and on. But you see the point that's being made here is that Melanchthon uses this understanding to say that, hey, this is what's been carried out throughout all the ages, and we are recipients of something that is truly ancient, not something that was that came about in the first century, but something that goes back further. We are heirs to this beautiful heritage that is celebrated in the little town of Fredericksburg, Texas, right? And all the places where God's word is preached truly and his sacraments are given. So think about that for a little bit. Um, and think about that as we continue on here, because we are continuing on. Um, because, it, and we're only going to go to verse 25 in chapter 10, okay? Because there's plenty here to talk about. Um, so, starting from verse 19 through to 25 here, chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean 
from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, in these few verses here, there's a lot. Um, what does this sound like? This, this, does some of this sound familiar? Some of this sound really familiar. Um, you know, if you look in your hymnals, which we don't have out right now, but you can, you can just hear it, right? Uh, in Divine Service Setting 3, which is the oldest divine service setting that we have in America here, like as, as Lutherans, that's, um, truth be told, that's my favorite, but I'm biased. What does it sound like? So let me read this again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Does that sound like, beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, it's very interesting because what's promised here? Um, it's interesting that Dr. Kleinig brings this up. He says, you know, okay, we'll start with this. He begins with their four brothers. Is this sexist? <laughs> Let me just throw that out there right now. Is this sexist? Brothers, sorry ladies, not you. Well, yeah, he says brothers and sisters. Right, that's what it means. Um, the, uh, uh, the Greek is adelphoi. Listen, brethren, right? Uh, and to some degree, I'm glad that the English Standard Version keeps it as brothers, because it is, I mean, it's not wrong, brothers and sisters. But in some ways, I think, you know, we've lost for the sake of being as egalitarian as possible and to not offend certain people, we've gone over and above trying to make sure it's like, oh, by the way, this means brothers and sisters. This means men and women, as opposed to just saying that we're all part of mankind, right? Uh, when we say men, who for us men and for our salvation, men and women, it's implied. And it also speaks to a certain headship that is severely lacking in this world. Um, you know, uh, there's so much nowadays where it's like men wonder why we should go to church because it seems to be only for women. Um, and the ladies love what you do. But men sometimes feel like I, I just don't have a place there. 
And it's very sad because um, Christ is for all people. <laughs> and the church needs men to lead uh, and to sacrifice themselves uh, to be like Christ in that way, right? Um, so we hear these things like brethren, um, and we say that includes all of us. And we say, why are we brothers? What makes us brothers? What makes us brethren, brothers and sisters? What is it? Christ. Yeah. Christ. Who is our brother? Christ. Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ our Lord. That we, in being baptized, right? and that's definitely alluded here, right? You see that? Where... Let us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil, uh, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That um, we are made sons of God, even the ladies. <laughs> and to make it fair, balanced here, it's very interesting. You know, you see. We are, we are all the sons of God, even the women. We are all counted as sons of God because the Son was given the inheritance, right? We are co-heirs with Christ on that account. And yet we are also members of the bride of Christ. In some ways, that's very balanced. <laughs> um, so if the ladies are sons... The men are also part of the bride. Uh, that's part of the mystery, right? How is that possible? Uh, but, you know, that's another discussion for another time. But we are all co-heirs with Christ. And since we are co-heirs with Christ, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, What's this talk about a curtain? Why is that significant? I'm going to take a drink of water here while I think about that. Yes. What's that? Right. So we talked a lot last time uh, about how in the temple there was that curtain that always separated uh, from the holy place to the holy of holies, uh, to the most holy place where God was dwelling. But now we see, and we talked last time, I think, about the church architecture that uh, typically, not right now because we don't have the center aisle, but that there's typically the center aisle that goes in and there's full access to the holy of holies because... Um, we have had the way open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, think about that. What does that mean, his flesh? Is that just talking about him becoming man and dying and things like that? Or does it have a deeper meaning there attached to it when it's talking about his flesh? Something to think about. What do y'all think? Yep. My Bible says our body. Yeah. 
our body. Yes, his own body. Yeah, through his body, yes. through his flesh, uh, all those things. Because what is truly significant about our Lord Jesus Christ that separates him from all other religions, all other faiths, what is distinct about Christianity? He was sinless, but I'm getting to something a little more, I guess a little bit more foundational. Well, how could he rise from the dead? Okay, so here's what I'm getting at. The incarnation. God becoming flesh. That the mystery of the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ dwelling together and not separate, you know, all this, the mystery of the incarnation is so profound. That's why sometimes if you watch me up here while we're saying the Nicene Creed, um, I, I, you know, we'll say, you know, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and I'll bow slightly, came, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And then I come back up because traditionally, you know, this is audiophile, of course, you don't have to do this, but that's my way and a lot of people's way of acknowledging the wonderful mystery of the incarnation of Christ. The, the, the indwelling of God in flesh and blood. The profound mystery of it and how we ourselves are tied to him because of our flesh as well. It's a very full being connection. Not just spiritual, but also physical in a, in a way. He felt our pain. He felt suffering. And that is what makes Christianity truly distinct and separate and so much higher than any other religion is that we have a God who became flesh, who suffered on our account, suffered all the pain that we should suffer so that we could receive eternal life, right? That's what truly makes us unique and separate and distinct. And by this, he says... <laughs> We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, through his body, sacrificed for us. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, remember last, a couple chapters back, how Moses was a servant in the house, but Christ is the one who built the house and who is the high priest of the house, he's the one who runs the show. How much greater Christ is than Moses, right? And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Um... I want to do something real quick and, and, and just to kind of show you what the uh, uh, author of Hebrews is getting at here uh, and, he's, and how he's using the Old Testament to use the language that he's using here of sprinkling clean, washing with pure water, right? Um, there are um, these foreshadowings of baptism in the Old Testament. Um, 
such as, let me see here. Um, I'm trying to see where these references are. So, for one, I want us to go to Ezekiel 36 in your Bibles. Ezekiel 36. I have to even remember where it is. Ezekiel. There we go. Ezekiel 36. It's right before Daniel. If you see Daniel, you've gone too far, um, I believe. Ezekiel 36, 25. So you all there in Ezekiel 36? Um, Ezekiel 36, 25. Um, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols I will cleanse you. Now, what it, it would help to know what this is referencing, right? Um, this is Ezekiel receiving revelation or prophecy from God. Um, Thus says the Lord God, it is for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, right? And I will vindicate, like, God is the one doing all these actions. You look at verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. God is doing this work, right? And he mentions water. Now, some pastors or theologians look at this and you say, well, not every reference of water, not every reference of water is about baptism. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Prove it. Right? Prove it. What is, what is going on? I mean, for us and our understanding of baptism, that sounds pretty clear. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That there was a promise for baptism, right? Um... These, this is a foreshadowing of what was to come. It's yearning for this, clean, for this cleansing, right? That is to be fulfilled in holy baptism. That Christ establishes, right? Now, um, I say that, and, I, and uh, there's also the outpouring of the Spirit um, in Isaiah. If you all want to turn there, you can. Isaiah 44, verse 3. Yeah, Isaiah 44, verse 3, where God says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Right? A lot of pouring, a lot of water sort of language. And this is what was foreshadowed what was desired at that time, right? And we have it. We have it now in holy baptism. And it's interesting to see um, where we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
And to know that if you go to Matthew 28, Therefore I tell you, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Right? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What is one thing that Jesus for sure commanded us to observe? What's necessary? I, I guess. I guess. His death and resurrection. Yeah, through, through Holy Communion. That's one of the things, right? He certainly said, "Do this in remembrance of me." Right? Do this as as often as you drink it. Right? As often as you eat it. These, these sort of thing, you know. Um, that Paul Paul relays this teaching of as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes, right? <clears throat> we, we proclaim this great sacrifice for us that he did on our behalf. But typically, it's interesting that this is put here because um, in the early church, um, you know, if, if people want to, if people <laughs> If people want to complain about closed communion in our day and age, they need to get in a time-traveling machine and go back to see how the early Christians did it. Because, you, you know, here's a, a quiz question. Do y'all know why it's called the Mass? You know why Holy Communion was called the Mass for the longest time? It's tricky. You have to know a little bit of language here. Because it comes from the missa, it's, it's a derivative of the dismissal. What happened in the early church was you would have um, converts coming into the church. And the Eastern church does this to some degree, depending on which order you're in. The Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox church does it to some degree. Well, they, they will have, like we have, the service of the word. They will have the readings and the prayers and a sermon, a proclamation of God's word. And then they will have their service of the sacrament, but there will be a dismissal where you get the, the where over time language changed to turn it into the mass. Where you would say, okay, all of you catechumens, the catechumenate, the ones who are learning the faith, who have not yet been baptized, you need to go now. Because now this is only for um, those who have been baptized and can pray certain things like the Lord's Prayer, right? That was their provisions because of persecution. They had to vet people and they had to teach people the faith so that, I mean, it's a long history, but they would have a dismissal of those who were still young in the faith, no matter how old they were. They were still learning. They had not been baptized yet. Uh, they were learning the faith. Yet, once they had gone through proper instruction, they were baptized, typically on a big day like the Easter Vigil, the Saturday before Easter. They'd be baptized, and then they would receive Holy Communion like right after they'd be baptized. Because now they are new creations and they can partake of the body and blood of Christ. They have been washed and sprinkled clean through the waters of holy baptism, and now they can receive that great gift of the body and blood of Christ. Right? That's, I mean, again, 
This is Adiaphora. We do it a little bit differently now. But can you see the tremendous um, weight that that sort of order puts on things, right? Uh, it really makes, uh, it really provides the opportunity for someone to think about what's really taking place here. Because throughout this time, they've been anticipating baptism. They've been uh, being instructed. Um, and these are all under normal circumstances. If someone's about to die, of course, and they want to be baptized, you don't hold that back. Saying, no, you haven't been properly instructed yet. All right? There are a lot of provisions that go along with this. But that is what would happen, is that no one would be allowed to the Lord's table without being baptized. As we believe to this day, right? Um, well, we believe it. There are a lot of other churches who will say, Come one, come all. The body and blood of Christ is for everyone, regardless if you've been baptized. And we say, uh, time out. I don't think that's quite right. And we can look at things like this to say that's not quite right. The only way we can approach God with a true heart to receive the body and blood of Christ, right, is when we have been baptized and we believe. Baptism is not just an empty work to say, okay, check that off the list, I'm done now. And now I can check the next thing off the list, which is receiving communion. Right? Faith plays a role in this as well. Um, and faith is a work of God as well. So, we see, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, where do we see this progression in our own divine service on Sundays? This progression from baptism to receiving the Lord's Supper? You know, think it's a little tricky. Kind of happens right at the beginning. Yeah, well, how do we begin? Right. What does the pastor say? What do I say first? That's right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. And if you look in your hymnal, there's a rubric. The sign of the cross may be made by all. It's may. You don't have to. But the sign of the cross may be made by all in remembrance of their baptism. That to draw near to God with a true heart, to confess our sins unto God our Father, we can only call God our Father when we have been made His children in the waters of baptism. Right? That's an important step. Um, this is not something that's just kind of like, well, you can take it or leave it. It's not one of those things. Um, at least when it comes to uh, drawing near to God to confess our sins and having that assurance, because that's what it is all about too. That's what it's about too, to have the confidence. I mean, sure, someone can sit in our pews or our chairs who's not baptized and say these words and they can receive some assurance that their sins have been forgiven, that God hears their prayer, He hears their confession. Yet we would say, but God wants so much more for you. 
He wants you to say beyond the shadow of a doubt, I have been washed and made clean by the waters of holy baptism, by the washing of the water and the word, so that I know that I can call God my Father, so I can pray the Lord's Prayer and truly say, Our Father who art in heaven, without a shadow of a doubt. Because until you're baptized, there's room for that doubt. So, with that, that's why he says, you know, um, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is for us who are baptized, who receive uh, the absolution, who receive the body and blood of Christ, and now because we have received that, you know, I, I chant it, I sing it every Sunday, uh, but what's that? Um, collect at the end after we receive communion and we sing the Nunc Dimittis, we have a thanksgiving, then I sing, you know, we give thanks to you, Almighty God, that you have refreshed us through this salutary gift, and we implore you that of your mercy you would strengthen us through the same in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. That hearing those words reminds us, listen, the body and blood of Christ is what you just received. That Jesus now is, again, without a doubt, dwelling in you. Right? We're not going to get into particulars of, you know, the body and the blood and when it stops being the body and the blood and this all this stuff like that but know that at that moment and from there on throughout the week you can say i had communion i had communion with god almighty i received the body and blood of christ and that's why i want to go out and do these great things to these people that's why i want to show god's love because god's love is dwelling in me in the body and blood of christ for the forgiveness of my sins so that I can have a clear conscience to go and love my neighbor. It's a wonderful gift. And that's another reason why I've, I've you know, um, encouraged and, and, and had us do this weekly. It's to say, listen, we need this gift. Uh, the world, and in some ways, um, the world has gotten crazier in a very visible way. Satan is on the move in a lot of ways now. Uh, through pandemic, through uh, people's fear of the pandemic, the, their overreactive fear sometimes, um, through uh, these racial issues, through riots and looting and persecution and all sorts of hardships coming the way, coming in the direction of the church. The heat and the grasshoppers. Yeah, the, <laughs> the heat and the grasshoppers, the locusts, you know, they're all coming for us. All these things remind us that we live in a sinful world, and where do we go for salvation and refuge? We go to the house of the Lord to receive his good gifts and be strengthened by those to go out into the world with the armor of God, his word, his body, his blood, dwelling within us so that we can go and be Christ to the world. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and we're out of time. So I'm going to leave it there. Uh, but... Uh, Lots, lots there. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up next time uh, there on uh, verse 26 and get to the end of chapter 10. We're actually making pretty good headway here uh, through the book of Hebrews. Um, 
Uh, with that, though, since we're out of time, I'll, I'll, I'll just, uh, we'll, we'll close with the Lord's Prayer. If you all have any questions or anything afterwards, we'll talk about them afterwards and address them next time. But let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.